Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Slumber Party with Amanda Jusen. I am super duper excited about our guest today, and full disclosure, I am fangirling uh, because Emily Oster wrote one of my all-time favorite books in my pregnancy, Expecting Better. It took this insane, anxious, pregnant woman down like 10 notches, which is pretty considerable. And uh, I gave it to every single one of my pregnant friends. So if you're listening to this and you're pregnant, that's a great step too. Uh, so when Emily wrote Crib Sheet, I was super eager to jump in and read it because Emily writes about parenting in a very factual way using data and I think presents the information in a pretty balanced way in order for parents to make decisions on things that work for them. And Cribsheet does just that. So Emily is uh, a Harvard-educated economist. Uh, she is now a professor at Brown University. And she just came out with Cribsheet, which is hugely successful. And we're really excited to have her on. So welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Honestly, thank you. I'm super pumped. Like I said, I'm a huge fangirl. I wish uh, I wish you had seen me in 2014 uh, or 13. <laughs> Do you get that a lot? It is. I get it some and it is very nice. It makes me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I've done some reading and listened. Uh, I was at your talk at Rotman on Friday and both of your parents were economists. Is this a common thing? It's surprisingly common. My husband is also an economist, actually. There are a lot of economists married to each other. I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, I think it's like, you know, there's a lot of doctors married to each other, too. I think it's just economists right. kind of a weird job. So I don't know. Right. And I feel like you're speaking a different language. A I think, bit. yeah, we do have, it, it definitely can be a little more efficient if you're married to someone who has the same <laughs> weird jargon that you have. Right, right, exactly. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, Cribsheet is tackling uh, everything. I think basically once you've had the baby, the baby comes out and you talk a lot about those parenting decisions from the time baby comes out to toddlerhood. Do you want to talk a little bit about the book in, in general? Yeah, so I, th I mean, I think that the book is a data a data-based approach to, to parenting. I mean, you know, I think sometimes I think about it kind of in, in light of the other books. So my first book, which is about pregnancy, there are a lot of things in there that are like, people told you you couldn't have a cup of coffee and it turns out you can. So there's, there's a lot of like sort of myth busting kind of, kind of stuff. Yeah. And I say this book is more about saying, you know, there's actually a lot of good ways to make these choices. And so, you know, it's it, in many ways, it's a little bit less like you should do X and a little bit more like, you know, actually, like if breastfeeding works for you, that's great. The benefits may not be as big as you think. And so you kind of have to decide what works for your family or, you know, daycare is, is fine. Nanny is fine. Stay at home. Mom is fine. These are all good choices. You have to think about what works for your, for your family. So it's a little bit more like, let's look at the data and think about how to structure the decisions relative to saying you should do you should do this. But ultimately, at the core, the book is like a bunch of data and, and trying to say, let me help you understand why this may be, these are hard questions to answer and what does the evidence really say? 
Yeah. And I really like that. I, I sort of take that approach in my work as well. I, I feel like because I, I work to help people with sleep training, I think a lot of uh, clients or people who are asking me questions feel like I'm going to be really anti-co-sleeping or anti-not sleep training. And my whole philosophy is I just want you to sleep, whatever yeah. that looks like for your family. And I think you do a really good job of laying that out. It is really balanced. I, I didn't feel particularly swayed in any, any particular way. And um, I think that's refreshing because as you mentioned in the book, there's so many intense Facebook conversations about these parenting decisions. It'd be nice to come at them with some data. Yeah. And I think also to come at them with some recognition that we like aren't all going to make the same choices, even if we see the same data. And I think that's that sometimes there's like a sense of like, okay, well, I, you know, I see this data. So the data must say this is the one right thing. It's like, no, the, you know, the data says like, here are some costs, (laughs) here are some benefits, like, you know, and I, I think that that is, that is good at stepping back and then maybe taking some of the judgment out. I don't know how much, like, I always, I think as like parents, we always, it's like hard not to feel very judged, even when people are just making different choices. Like when people make different choices, it's like, oh, you must think my choice is not good. Totally. I know. I feel this way about TV all the time. (laughs) I solo parent a lot and I was very thankful that you mentioned TV in the book because my kids probably watch more TV than I ever thought I would like. And then someone's like, oh, we never watch TV during the week. And I'm like, yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not true. I don't even have a TV. Uh, What's TV? (laughs) Yeah, my children only know. play with wooden. They play with wooden blocks. Um, that's their main activity. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. All of the things are wood. It's just wood. <laughs> it's just, that's all. We don't have plastic. If, that's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I feel. I feel. I, I know. It's funny that you mentioned that too. And maybe this is like an addendum chapter. It's like plastic in your house. Like I feel like there's a constant inventory in my house about how much plastic. I'm like, God, it just finds its way. I don't know how to stop. I know. It. No, it's like we always, it's like toys that make noise. You know, when our kids was little, we had like a rule that was like, you could only get gifts of toys that make noise from the nanny because she was spending more time. (laughs) Like that was the only person where it was like, okay, if she's willing to put up with it, like we should be willing to put up with it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great rule. Okay. So write that down, ladies. That is a great rule. I love it. (laughs) Okay. So I, uh, I, you know, base my work, I, I like to say I'm an evidence-based practice. So the things that I'm going to be suggesting that people do, uh, the methodologies might be different, but um, all in all, in, it works and it's safe. Um, and I think uh, I would love for you to talk about what the data is saying about sleep training and its safety, as it is a huge concern for a lot of my clients and a lot of the uh, the listeners on this podcast. Yeah. So I think one thing to say is I, actually in a lot of places in this book, I'm like, oh, we don't really have that much data. We kind of have to draw our conclusions without good data. But this is a place where, the, where the, I think the data is pretty good because there's a fair amount of evidence that comes out of ran, like randomized controlled trials where some people are randomly told to sleep train in some way and some some people are told uh, not to, and they kind of look at the at the kids. And what you see there is, you know, first, there are a lot of these studies which look in the short term. So like, you yeah. know, in the, in the kind of month or short period of time after, like, do the babies who are sleep trained, like, do they seem more upset or anxious or nervous? And the answer is like, no, if anything, those studies show that the babies are happier. 
I never really right. know how to interpret that because I think part of it may be that the parents are happier because they're sleeping more. <laughs> yeah. like, so I, I'm not sure which way the causality goes there, but there certainly isn't anything in those data which would say that, you know, people think their babies don't don't love them, which I think is like fundamentally always our fear when we let our kids cry. Right. And then it, in at least one of these like reasonably sized studies, they actually followed the kids until they were five or six. So sometimes you'll hear people hear things like, you know, if you do this, like maybe it won't show up right away. Yeah. But it will show up like in, you know, when your kid is older, they won't, they will have this, this problem. And again, when you look at, you know, five or six, the kids don't look any different. So they're just, they just yes. look the same. Um, and so it is. And in fact, I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no. So they just look the same. So there isn't any evidence that there's any problems. Yeah. And I, and I think it's the same study that actually showed that children who were sleeping at the age in five and six had lower stress levels than their peers when they were sleeping. Um, I'm not sure if it's the same one, but in terms of like a long-term benefit, that seems to be one of them. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the other thing is like in the, there, there are some, there are some big benefits for the parents, which I think are often missed in these discussions. We sort of spend so much time yeah. being like, okay, is it bad for the baby? You know, like what if it was a little bad for the baby? You know, like that would be the, yeah, there would be no benefits, but actually like in terms of like maternal yeah. depression, this is like a really good way to address parental depression, you know, even to some extent totally. marital satisfaction. So, you know, I, I think yeah. it is, we are sometimes missing that, you know, chronic sleep deprivation is like a real problem for people. Adults. Totally. And I think you mentioned this on, on Friday in your talk that we seem to forget the the benefit to parent conversation and that we need to be martyrs as parents and, and as mothers. And it doesn't have to look that way because if, you know, I tell my clients all the time, if the risks, if the benefit outweighs the risk and the actual scientific risk is quite low, you being a rested parent and a safe parent is, is really, really important. And it's such, it's a missing part of that conversation. No, I totally agree. And I think that we, yeah, we just sort of don't, we don't prioritize that in a way that, um, that we should, is in some sense, like, even if you care about, like, only cared about the kid, actually, like, having a rested and happier parent is also good for your kids. Yes. You yes. know, and I, I think this, I think in some ways, it's easier for people often with the second kid, partly because you see that if you are not a rested parent, it's hard to parent the first kid. <laughs> and it's like more visible that like your parenting is suffering from your sleep deprivation. It, it's funny that you say that I get a lot of second time parents call and they sort of say, oh God, we didn't do well with the first yes. and uh, we, we just can't do this again. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's usually the, the tipping point. Yeah. So it, it's funny that you actually, in the book, you talk about all of the the counter, uh, you know, air quotes because we're on a podcast. Evidence of how crying it out or or cry based solutions are dangerous, and it's really funny that you, like in the book you you say uh, if you Google "cry it out dangerous," there is a psychologist that it comes up that's saying it's dangerous, and I get that article sent to me like once a week. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yes. <laughs> exactly what you're talking about. I was like, I know that one. <laughs> yeah. So 
Yeah, I would love because that's that's my biggest uh, question. I mean, I've I've gone through the data, I've studied it as a specialist. There doesn't seem to be any negative effects, though we keep hearing about this so-called evidence. And I would wonder if you could speak to where that comes from. Yeah, so I think that this is part of a kind of broader sort of attachment parenting kind of conversation. But I think the particular thing that this this comes out of is these Romanian orphanage experiences. So, uh, so in right. the 1980s, there was this sort of period in Romania where there were a lot of unwanted kids because they basically stopped having abortion. Let's like put that aside, how relevant that is in America yeah. at the moment. But, right. but there were a lot of unwanted kids who ended up in these orphanages. And these orphanages were like really awful places with mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of neglect of all, all of the different kinds of, of neglect. Um, and one of the things was with the babies, they basically got very little human contact for right. you know months, like for very long periods. And when people came and like visited these orphanages, one of the things they noticed was the babies never cried because, of course, there was no point in crying because nobody would come. And then, and then when they sort of followed these kids for a long period of time, as you as you might expect, this experience sort of affected these children their whole life. They did struggle to form attachments. There were all kinds of they had all kinds of problems in in later childhood and and adulthood. Right. And you know, obviously that that was a horrible episode which should never have yeah. happened. But I think then we sort of have that somehow got ported into the idea that like letting your kid cry for 30 minutes when, you know, at or even 2 hours, you know, at at night, you know, for for 6 nights or 3 nights or whatever it is, that that somehow is kind of like the Romanian orphanage experience and that the fact that they eventually <laughs> exactly. is like somehow reflective of of the sort of same the same thing. And I think that that's, yeah. you know, we all kind of understand that that's not actually the same, but I think yeah. it's really not, it's so far that it's hard to even imagine that we're learning something, you know. It's a pretty big stretch. Yeah. I tell parents all the time, like, you're leaving your child for a specific moment in time. Sometimes you don't even have to leave them. There's no way they could feel not attached or disassociated from you if you are right there and you love them and they're they're in this beautiful loving environment with right. you two caring parents. It doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, I think it's just it like the, you know, there's just a totally different thing to say like you're going to cuddle them and and snuggle them and wrap them up and put them down and and you know even close the door and say like I love you and then th- yeah. that's not the same it's not the same but I think <laughs> part of what is it is it like yeah. it's very I'm sure you experience this is probably why people hire you to help them with this but like it's very hard to listen to your kid to get yes, to your kid yes. cry. It's very very hard um and you know it's I think that you know, for me, part of what made this so much easier with the second kid was that I was so much more confident that it was a good idea. Yes. And that yeah. it's much easier to kind of, to like sort of, once you've thought about the evidence and once you've, even once you've honestly seen it with one kid, it's much easier to be like, okay, like this is going to work and then, you know, it's going to be fine and, and it's going to have all these other benefits for the kid and, and you know, for for me. And I think that once people experience their kids still loving them, that they're like, oh, okay, this is great. And I always try to tell people, no one would refer me or recommend me to you if I broke their child. No one would be like, you know what? I'm sleeping eight hours. I have zero attachment to my child, but I'm sleeping. But who cares? (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't happen. Um, One, you know, I I do want to talk about one more thing and then I'll let you get on with your way. But 
I get a lot of comments about the cortisol study that Dr. Sears referenced, and you reference this in your book as well. And I would love for you to to comment because this study is real. But I do think that the authors of the study have since come up against Dr. Sears's uh, interpretation of the data, and I would love for you yeah. to talk about that. Yeah. So if we sort of take a step back and say, what is this study? This is a study in in New Zealand of a small number. It's like twenty five kids um, in a in a sleep lab, um, and the the goal of being in the sleep lab was to to sleep train. And while they were doing this, they collected information on on cortisol levels in the babies and their um and their their moms and they did it you know before the sleep training and then after the the kids fell asleep and the sort of sleep training part went kind of like you'd expect like the babies cried on the first day and they had some they had some sort of cortisol levels and their moms also were stressed out and then they cried a little bit less on the second day and then on the third day none of them cried which like is an advertisement of how sleep training works Exactly. <laughs> but it was true that the the babies still had on that third day had these cortisol levels that were it, it's a little ambiguous whether they were actually elevated as opposed to just they had some they had a particular level of cortisol that was the same on the third day as the second. Right. But for the moms they were less stressed after the babies didn't didn't cry. And and that's kind of the end of the study, right? So that's sort of that's like a few right. days and that's it we're done. And right. And the interpretation that they that they put, I think, particularly the serious people have put on it, is that like now the the mother and the infant are detached because now mm-hmm. the infant is still experiencing some level of cortisol, but the mom is now like you know relaxed, and so that suggests that they've been they've been detached in some way. You know, I don't. I think that represents an overinterpretation yeah. of data, like by a pretty substantial margin, right? you know, particularly in light of all of the other evidence we have that on a lot of other measurable things going out many years, there's no evidence of these kind of problems. So I'm just, I'm just not sure that taking, I I, I am sure that taking that evidence as somehow a, a a sort of betrayal of of sleep training, I, I think that's too far. Right, exactly. And I think you do a great job in the book as well. Uh, I'm not an economist. <laughs> so a lot of this stuff, I, I, I think you do a good job of breaking all these things down in, in layman's terms and also allowing people to understand what makes a good study. Because, you know, something you talk about in the book is the media loves nothing more than to say a study has just claimed, but we don't actually look at how good that study is yeah. or how reputable it is among the academic community. It's just a study, a soundbite, three days, and then it's over. I think you do, you know, without giving too much away, people should buy your book. Uh, you do a good job of what to look for in terms of those studies, yeah. which I think can be very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you I talk think... about... sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, you talked about on Friday, like, the amount of risk we're all willing to take getting in a car every day <laughs> and like yeah, how we're no, I, so comfortable with that level. I talk about that all the time because I think that when we, particularly when we talk about these risks in parenting, there can be this, this sort of sense of like no risk is acceptable. And I think that yeah. saying the thing about the car kind of makes people think like, oh, like living your life entails some risks, which obviously I'm willing to take because I get in this car. And so, you know, then I think it makes it easier, even though it's not easy to, to kind of confront the idea of risk with your kid, I think that makes it easier to think about it if you have some kind of 
background level that you're understanding. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think you've done a great job sort of pointing out my uh, favorite sleep parts of the book. I honestly, I think the, I, I was a little bit worried that I would read the book and be like, oh God, I've made all these bad decisions, but I didn't <laughs> feel that way, which is good. Bad. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. And I think it does a good primer for a, a quite a long time. So uh, most of the listeners of this podcast are fairly new moms or are moms with young children. Um, and I think it it takes you right up to sort of toddler and preschoolhood. But I wanted to know before we ended today, what portions you're really of the book that you're really like proud of or really excited that you got to write to kind of share this information with others? So honestly, the the chapter I'm the most proud of is the one about about postpartum recovery for moms. And it's not one that I end up getting yes. to talk about ever on these, these interviews because everybody wants to hear about breastfeeding or sleep training, which is great. I also like <laughs> chapters, but I feel yeah. like, you know, there's so little discussion of uh, what it is like mm-hmm. to physically recover from childbirth. And and in that chapter, I really just yes. tried to put down like, here's what's going to happen. Like it's, here's what's going to be coming out of your vagina after you have a baby. And I, I think yes. I, you know, here is a postpartum <laughs> depression screen. Like, you know, here is kind of what you, what you expect. And I just mm-hmm. think that that's totally not totally not discussed enough yeah you are a hundred percent right and I was actually thinking about that while reading the chapter that I don't know about you when you were pregnant Emily like I just felt like you're walking around and people are just constantly telling you how horrifying birth is how you know horrible the whole thing is all gonna be how you'll never be the same or you have people who are like, a baby will magically fly out of your vagina <laughs> yes. and it's beautiful. None of those things I think is actually true. It, it's going to be a great thing. It's also going to be pretty tough. And I think um, your disclaimer is if you are a mom who's already had this and you don't, <laughs> don't want to read this, this you don't, don't have to. <laughs> my college roommate, really my best friend was like, tell people that they don't have to read this chapter. She was like, I am having flashbacks. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> but my husband said it was his true. favorite chapter. So that was nice. Really? Yeah. Wow. There you go. I think it's really helpful. And I think um, I think you don't know what to expect. And also just a little plug, your, your how-to on breastfeeding was great as well. Because I actually had a friend take me aside right before I had my first and she had had hers about like uh, three months before. And she's like, hey, this is my third kid. Nobody showed me how to breastfeed. I'm going to show you my boobs. And I'm going to show you how to breastfeed That's right awesome. now. And I was like, this is really weird. But it was the best thing. And we were breastfeeding champs. Like I just got it. And you did a great job with that as well with your diagram. So yeah, well done yeah. all around. There's something for everyone in there. Thank you. Well, Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Everyone has to buy Crib Sheet. I, I read it in a hot minute on my Friday night. <laughs> it's really Good good. thing to do. Get a glass of wine. <laughs> I Well, my husband was traveling and I was like, I literally have nothing to do and I'm going to slam this book. And I did. It was really enjoyable. I, I've since lent it to a friend. I was like, you have to read this right now. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. 
So that was my interview with Emily Oster, author of Crib Sheet and Expecting Better, two books I cannot recommend more, honestly. If you are pregnant or a new mom, these are must-haves on your registry even. I do highly recommend everyone go out and read all of these lovely things. And once again, I always like to stress that it's only a problem for you if it's a problem for you. Don't let anyone tell you what your sleep needs to look like until it's an issue for you. I solve problems. I don't diagnose them. So on that note, have a wonderful week. I hope you found that valuable. And head on over to my Instagram to share your thoughts on that. Uh, shoot me a DM, uh, write me an email. And as always, keep your sleep questions coming. There are so many. They're coming fast and furious. I can't answer them all, but I'll do my best. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. 